Well, I'm beginning today in a way that I don't think I have ever started a sermon in 12 years now of being a pastor, and that is by reading a poem. And not just any poem, but a very long poem. What I hope to accomplish, if nothing else, with this Easter sermon is I wanted to give you good conversation material for your Easter lunch. I imagine the conversation going something like this. Woman at lunch. Didn't that poem just speak to your heart? Man at lunch. I cannot believe he read a poem. (laughs) So... My apologies to the men for breaking one of the immutable rules of the Society of Men, no poem reading. But I appeal to you men to try to stay with it, try to listen to the poem, be open-minded, because it speaks to an issue that affects all of us, including men. The poem is The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more." Ah, distinctly I remember it was in the bleak December, and each dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more. Presently, my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is, I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door, darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into the darkness peering, long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber, turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery 
explore. Tis the wind and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter when with many a flirt and flutter in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door. Perched above a bust of palace, just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird, beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore, though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore, tell me what thy lordly name is, on the night's Plutonian shore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculpted bust above his chamber door, with such a name as never more. But the raven, sitting lonely on the placid bus, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing further then he uttered, not a feather then he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered. Other friends have flown before, on the morrow, he will leave me as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, caught from some unhappy master whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore. So the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, never more. But the raven still beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore, meant in croaking nevermore. Then I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing, to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining, on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet... Violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press, ah, nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim, whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite, and nepenthe, from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, O oh, quaff this kind repenthe, and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. 
Prophet said, I thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempest sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore. Quoth the raven, never more. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's Plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting, on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted never more. There is so much that can be said, so much analysis that could be offered about this poem, but I just want to draw your attention to a couple of the obvious aspects of the poem. The poem is written from the perspective of one who has lost what we believe to be a lover, the often mentioned Lenore. And the loss of this love has left the man completely brokenhearted. As the poem says, it is a bleak December when our writer is trying to escape from the sorrow of the lost Lenore by losing himself in the stories of books. He hears a tapping at his chamber door and he opens to find only darkness. His mind is so consumed with the lost Lenore that he calls out her name, but in return hears only the echo of his own voice. Then the tapping comes at the window. He opens it to find a raven perched above his chamber door. He inquires and is told that the raven's name is Nevermore. After wrestling with the fact that there is a speaking raven, which hopefully we would all have to wrestle with that, the man reasons that tomorrow this intruder will go away, to which the bird replies, Nevermore. The man begins to guess why it is that the bird speaks this one and only word. He Reasons that it is random, but soon discovers the bird speaks the word very purposefully. The word continues to remind him of his lost Lenore, and so he cries out for respite from the haunting memories of Lenore, to which the bird again replies, nevermore. The man asks, is there balm in Gilead, which simply means, is there ointment for my soul? Is there healing to be had for my broken heart? The bird's reply is, 
nevermore. The man then cries out for hope that someday in the afterlife, he might again hold his beloved Lenore. And the bird again says, nevermore. The man in desperation now shrieks for the raven to leave him alone and stop tormenting him with this awful word. And the answer comes again, nevermore. And the poem ends with the raven still tormenting the man. And the man resigning himself that he will never be lifted out of the darkness of his loss and the torment over his loss. The man has suffered a loss from which he cannot recover, a loss that cannot be restored. He has suffered an irretrievable loss, and it causes him unrelenting sorrow. I realize that this is a rather dark and dreary way to start a sermon on a day that most of you came here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I have to say that I do not believe there is a more apt summary of life without God, life without Christ, life without the resurrection than this word, nevermore. Let me be clear that I think life is a great blessing. Whether a person is a believer or an unbeliever, we all have the blessings of what theologians call common grace. I mean, a beautiful sunset is a wonderful thing, whether you believe there's a God who created it or you don't. A warm spring makes happy the heart, whether you believe it's a gift from God or you think it's just chance. Life is good. Life is a precious gift. But I say that this word nevermore is an apt summary of life apart from God, Christ, and the resurrection because it is. The best of lives are marked by loss, marked by losing things that cannot be recovered, cannot be reclaimed. This is true in small ways and rather uh, insignificant ways all the way up to the most significant things of our lives. It might just be overactive nostalgia, but I personally, as I have gotten older, have been amazed at how much I inwardly lament the loss of simple things that I can't get back. Uh, I stood in front of my elementary school a couple of years ago, and all that was there for me to look at was an empty lot. And you have to know that I didn't even like the place when I went there. I uh, hated it, in fact. But I felt this horrible sense of loss. It was a stately looking school, never be able to see it again, never be able to walk the halls, never be able to peek into the classes where I spent so many hours early in my life. Two blocks down the road from that school is the house that I lived in from the time I was five until I was 11. I look at it, but I'll never be able to cross the threshold again. Won't be able to peer into my bedroom. I won't be able to stand in the living room where so many of my early memories are centered. I won't be able to look at the counter in the kitchen where many of our family meals were had when I was at the most impressionable of ages. The sense of loss of things that cannot be recovered, can't be reclaimed, is so strong. And I don't think I'm alone in this. We experience it in many ways. Perhaps for some of you, it's a career opportunity that you let pass. Your reasons for letting it pass may have been good, even principled reasons. 
Or perhaps you just thought it was the first of many such opportunities that would come your way, so letting this one pass wouldn't be a big deal, but the next one never came. And you've never again had the opportunity to make that kind of money or to do something vocationally that you would have found that enjoyable. The opportunity was lost, and you can't get it back. Maybe you never completed high school or you never completed college and now the demands on your time are such that it at least appears, it seems, that the opportunity has passed you by. Your life is good, but you regret an opportunity fixed and you, or an opportunity missed and you can't fix it now. My kids are 14 and 10, but I can't tell you, and I know all of you who are parent, our parents can relate to this, uh, I'm realizing how quickly these precious years that we have with them are just flying by. And there is nothing that I can do about it. I remember Aaron when he was about six years old, and he'll want me to stress this was when he was about six years old. Uh, We were in the basement of our house during a tornado warning, and he looked at Michelle and I, and he said with a a mixture of of bravery and fear, uh, Mom and Dad... Uh, I just want you to know that I love you in case this is the last. Now, if we try to get him to go to the basement, we're more likely to have eyes rolled at us. I remember Austin, my youngest son, so clearly calling chocolate milk, call, call, kilk. And he doesn't call it that anymore. Of course, it's good that he doesn't call it that anymore, but I can still miss it. And now the realization is hitting me at how horrible we have been at not taking video of our children. Here we have this wonderful technology that we can record movement and voices. And we have virtually none. And I don't like it. But I can't fix it. Maybe for you it's a divorce that causes you to feel a sense of loss. It wasn't your choice, you didn't want it, but you couldn't stop it. The person you loved left, and there's nothing you can do to reclaim that relationship. For some, it may be a committed marriage that's causing you to feel this sense of loss. For you, the sense of loss might be that the marriage isn't all that a marriage is capable of being. You're committed, but it's difficult, it's such hard work, and you lament the loss of the potential of how good marriage could be. For some of you, you're faced with chronic health problems. You used to be so healthy. You used to be the picture of vitality, and now just getting through an average day requires unbelievable effort. You lament the loss of your health, but even more, you lament that it is simply not within your power to restore or reclaim what has been lost. It's gone And you can't get it back. Of course, we all know the loss of loved ones. I have grandparents that have been gone for quite some time now. And how I would love to hear their voices again, but I can't. How I'd love to sit around a dinner table with them again, but I can't. Doesn't matter how much I want to, I can't make it happen. They're gone. And I can't get them back. All of us have losses like this. Some of you have lost spouses, siblings, parents much too young. And the list could go on and on and on. We lose people. 
and we can't get them back. And then on top of all of that, each of us live with the fact that somewhere out there in the future somewhere, we're going to come to that moment when we face our own mortality. It will be all over for us. There will be nothing that we can do to stop it. Nothing we can do to change it. We lament nevermore. We lament the loss of things that are irretrievable. Hanging like a dark cloud even over the very best life, even on the most beautiful day, is the reality of things that are lost and cannot be retrieved. Never more. Friends, we are celebrating Easter 2014 because God has an answer for nevermore. The Bible reveals the answer to nevermore. In this world marked by nevermore, God sent his one and only son to live a sinless life, to die a substitutionary death, and to rise from the dead. In this world of nevermore came Christ with the answer for nevermore, with the solution for nevermore, with freedom from nevermore. And the answer for, the solution for, the freedom from nevermore is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, 1 through 6 tells us about the resurrection, tells us about what Christ did, about how he provided the solution for nevermore. Here's what we find. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. This is the reason that we've gathered to celebrate today. Christ rose from the grave just as he said he would. Now, today's message is not an apologetic for the resurrection. But let me just mention, if you are here and you are skeptical about the resurrection of Jesus, I highly commend the little book that we offered earlier in the service. It's called The Case for Easter. It's a very accessible book, but a very compelling defense of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that I would commend for your reading. From the authenticity of the accounts to the fact that Christianity would have never gotten off the ground if the authorities would have simply produced the dead body of Jesus. To the fact that Jesus' own disciples were skeptical of the resurrection until the evidence was just so overwhelming that they could no longer deny it. And the list goes on and on and on. The reasons to believe the resurrection are compelling. The evidence is overwhelming. It is the central truth upon which the Christian church rests. It is the central event of all of human history. Christ did indeed rise from the dead, and he is alive today. That's what happened. That's what happened. And when you believe it, the reality of the resurrection itself 
is cause for celebration. But the cause for celebration increases exponentially when you realize what the resurrection means for those who believe. And we find that in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 26. Here's what it says. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father after, to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. We find that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has great significance for our lives. It was not just a great display of Christ's power, though it was that. The resurrection actually secured something for us. Paul writes that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. This means that Christ was the first, but he isn't the only. There will be more. He goes on and tells us that death came to all men through Adam, but life comes to all men through Jesus Christ. Christ is risen. And when he returns to earth, all who belong to him will be raised to life. In that day when he defeats all of his enemies, with the final enemy being defeated, being death. Christ is victorious over death. We are still today subject to death. But when Christ returns, we will have the same relationship with death that Christ does. Death will be destroyed for us by Christ and will possess not just by promise, but in fact, eternal life. The simple summary of Paul's writing is that Christ's resurrection secures your resurrection. Christ's eternal life secures your eternal life if you belong to him. The text is very clear that this applies to those who belong to him. This is God's answer to nevermore. This is God's answer for loss and sorrow. There's a better day coming. There's a day of resurrection coming. And here's one of the beautiful things. The resurrection of Jesus doesn't just answer the problem of our personal, personal mortality. That's not the only aspect of nevermore that the resurrection of Christ answers. The resurrection of Christ answers every loss and sorrow that we experience in this life. I want to show you that just briefly in a couple of passages of Scripture. The first one is Matthew 19, 28, and 29. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, so at the end, when Christ is returned, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, 
You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, that specific promise is to his original 12, the uh, apostles. But now it expands to include everyone who belongs to him. Here's what we find. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or child or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. First, you need to understand that Jesus is acknowledging there that there will be losses in life that we won't be able to get back. But he doesn't just acknowledge there will be losses. He tells us how loss isn't really loss. He says, whatever you lose... You'll receive a hundred times as much and you'll inherit eternal life. In light of the eternal life that Christ has secured and the blessings of that eternal life, the losses of this life aren't really losses, but actually result in our gain. Timothy Keller uh, probably the the nationally known pastor that I have the greatest respect for, summarizes the benefits secured for us by the resurrection this way. He says, the resurrection says we lose nothing. Loss isn't really loss. God, Christ, the resurrection makes it so that we really lose nothing. In one of the most glorious verses, uh, sections of Scripture in the entire Bible, drives home this truth. It's found in Revelation 21, 1 through 5, and here's what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Pay special attention now. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy. They are true. These verses tell us that on that great day when God restores and renews the earth, when all wrongs are made right, when forever we will live on the earth in fellowship with him, as was intended from the beginning. That's what these verses are telling us about. All of those wonderful things are going to happen. Everything will be made new. Everything will be made right. And notice the characteristics of this time. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. You can read that. He will wipe every tear from my eyes. There will be no more death. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Loss 
and sorrow over loss will be done away with. All things will be made right. All things will be renewed. The resurrection says we lose nothing. On that day, with everything gained, there will be no sense of loss or sorrow over a torn down schoolhouse. There will be no sense of loss or sorrow over videos not taken or memories faded. There will be no sense of loss or sorrow over an opportunity missed. There will be no sense of loss or sorrow over a difficult marriage. In fact, you're going to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. There will be no sense of loss or sorrow over a few decades of missing grandma and grandpa or mom or dad or any of the loved ones whose deaths have brought us such pain in this life. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is coming a day when there will be no loss and no sorrow over loss. The resurrection says that in the truest sense, we lose nothing. In Christ, when all things are made right, when all things are made new, there is no loss. There is only gain. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's answer for nevermore. And the resurrection places another word into our consciousness. A word written over our lives that supersedes nevermore. A word that can push nevermore aside when it tries to ruin a beautiful day for us. When it tries to assert itself as the final word of our lives. The word that supersedes, that replaces it, secured by the resurrection, is forevermore. We will live with Christ forevermore. We will be free from loss forevermore. We will have no sorrow forevermore. We'll have no tears, no pain, no crying, no mourning forevermore. We will be filled with joy forevermore. We'll have peace forevermore. We'll have fellowship with God and all those who belong to him forevermore. We'll experience the heavens and the new earth in all of their original splendor forevermore. You know, what we see of the earth and God's creation now is just like a marred version of what it was in the beginning. We'll experience it in all of its original splendor. And here's an exciting thought. We will live totally free. No no longer subject to the temptations that come to us from the world and from our own flesh. And we'll be free forevermore. The resurrection removes nevermore from our lives and it replaces it with forevermore. This wonderful freedom and this glorious experience of forevermore secured by the resurrection of Jesus, is for all those who belong to him. This tells us, friends, that there is a choice that has to be made. 
Will we be among those who belong to him or not? These two words, nevermore or forevermore, your life, every life in here, every life on this planet is marked by one of these two words. Which is it for you? If you're living life apart from God, apart from Christ, never having believed in Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, never having asked him to be your savior, then the word that marks your life today is this awful word, nevermore. But Christ offers you something better. Christ offers forevermore. And you can receive what Christ offers by simply believing the truth about yourself and the truth about Jesus. And by giving yourself to Jesus, receiving him as your Savior and your Lord. It's really very simple. It's, it's not easy because it requires us to accept the truth about ourselves. But, but it is simple. The Bible says that all of us have sinned. What that means is that we have rebelled against God. We have overthrown God's rightful rule of our lives And we've established ourselves as sovereign over our own lives. And because we've done that, the Bible says we have earned for ourselves the appropriate wages that such rebellion earns for people. And those wages, according to the Bible, are death, which if it's completely understood means something really close to this. Eternal conscious separation from God with no hope of salvation. You can't get a more troubling nevermore than that. So to receive the benefits of Christ's resurrection, to have forevermore mark our lives instead of nevermore, we have to agree with God's assessment about us, that we've sinned against him, and that that sin places us in the position of deserving death. If we will agree with God about that, then Jesus offers these life-giving words to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's how you come to belong to him. You believe in him. And when you do your promised eternal life, you are promised God's forevermore. I think it's important for us to understand that believe in this verse is much more than mental agreement or mental assent. We get much closer to the meaning of the word when we think of believe as trust. We don't just believe in a yes, I think that's probably true sort of a way. But we believe in a I believe this is true and I'm willing to entrust my entire life to Jesus and the truth about his life, death, and resurrection. That's the sort of way that we believe. The Apostle Paul describes how we come to belong to Christ this way. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As Scripture says... Anyone who trusts in him 
will never be put to shame. The world and the enemy of your soul offers you only nevermore. Irretrievable loss and unrelenting sorrow. Christ, because of his resurrection that we celebrate today, offers you forevermore. Life completely free from loss, completely free from sorrow, unending life filled with joy and peace and everything good and right. Many of you here today have responded to Christ's offer, and your life is marked with this word forevermore. But some of you have not. And the choice is yours. God makes forevermore available to everyone who will come to Christ in faith. So the choice is yours. And it's my prayer that today, Easter Sunday, 2014, that some of you here will make the decision to trust in Jesus, to allow Christ to remove nevermore from over your life and to replace it with this wonderful word forevermore. Why don't you stand?